Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And today we are going to be hopefully taking a little bit of a step away from the more negative or discernment (laughs) type of episodes that we've uh, been doing here for the past couple of weeks. We don't want to, you know, always be negative, trying to look at things and break them apart. But we also want to offer what I would consider positive projects uh, of of trying to think together about particular issues that uh, relate to our life as Christians and our ministry uh, as as Christians in the world around us. And so today, as you can probably see in the title of the episode, we're going to be talking about uh, the subject of how the church and the state relate to one another. Uh, This is a very complex question. There's a lot of of, thinking that needs to be done in particular in, re- in regards to defining even our mm. terms of church and state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not always necessarily all that easy uh, thinking about how, how humans in civilization projects need to be governed and how the church, uh, what part the church has to play in that process and what part the state has to play. It is quite complex. And as we'll see, as the episode goes on, there've been many different, interpretations or many different ways of approaching the relationship between the church and the state or the church and the government. Uh, And so it is, it's, it's definitely one of those episodes where we'll be getting into the weeds. I I will say that it is, uh, it's not something that Mark and I both feel like we're particular experts on. Mm, At least I speak for myself there. I agree. Um, I, I, I often think when I talk about this subject, about the smarter people I know, uh, maybe not personally, but different authors or uh, theologians that have written very extensively on these sorts of things, and I often just want to want to tell people, go and read their <laughs> things. I can point you to some good books that I know exist, but I, I, I definitely realize when I come to this particular issue, my own limitations, my... Uh, my lack of expertise, but well, while maybe, that that's maybe, the case, I, I think we can say some provisional things that are helpful for you yeah. and that move the conversation along. So and maybe that shows a little bit of our approach to the topic in general, that we are ministers. Um, we work in the church. It is our job to study God's word and to um, preach that word to, uh, and Pastor Zach's case, the youth group, and occasionally to the full congregation and lead Bible studies and things of that nature, and it's my job to care for this flock. And so both of us see our role as ordained ministers to be more of an ecclesiastical role, whereas you will find people in the world, ministers in the world, who would sort of see it as their job to make all kinds of political commentary. And Hmm. part of the reason that we don't study this all the time is in how we understand the topic itself, the connection between church and state. We have, uh, I would say, fairly clear views of our own ordination, and um, that is for both of us to preach the gospel, to administer sacraments, to uh, care for this flock in this this body, to do some Mm -hmm. evangelistic work certainly as well, but we don't really see it within our purview to make all kinds of political commentary, uh, either from the pulpit or in council meetings or so forth and so on. Yeah, we very much see our responsibility as being to the church. Yes. Uh, not that we aren't citizens also of the state of or of the United States of America, to be, in, to be exact. We, we definitely see ourselves as having a part to play in our political process, but mm-hmm. as ministers— we don't see ourselves as being quasi-politicians who are trying yeah. to uh, 
you know, make our polit- political visions realized mm-hmm. by telling people exactly what to do all the time. Yeah. Um, we're not trying to legislate things. What we're what we're called to do as ministers is to, as Mark said, preach the gospel, administer the sacraments, and fulfill church discipline and our our. And, and through that, not just disciplining people yeah. or excommunication, but discipling yeah. people, yeah. and and walking alongside them in their in their growth as Christians, and and hopefully doing what Ephesians four calls us to do as pastors to uh, to equip people to to minister yeah. uh, to the world, um, and so that that does show the relationship just I think a little bit between what we do as pastors and how we are hopefully discipling our flock and our flock is living well in the world and engaging well in the world as, to, as well. Well, and uh, therefore, our mentality and our mission does show a lot about what we believe about the connection between church and state. To contrast our approach to our job as ministers, I think of a pastor friend that I have. Um, he's not in the Ripon area or anything. He lives far away. And I was once talking with him, and I I was really excited about Martin Lloyd-Jones at the time. I had just discovered him a few months before I was with this pastor again. And, man, I was just so excited to talk to him about this great preaching that I found. And I said, every time in my car, I'm listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones, basically now. <laughs> and and I said, "Who? what pastors are you excited about listening to? And he basically said, I don't listen to preaching. I'll listen to NPR. <laughs> and that shows a lot about what his understanding of his his role and his goal the goal of the church was and um it was to be really a community builder and and so forth it was more of a political um goal than i certainly have based on what i listen to when i'm in my car Mm -hmm. um and so of course it's fine to listen to npr and you don't have to be listening to sermons all the time if you're a pastor but i think that that is Mm -hmm kind of like a parable of how we as uh, reformed ministers see our job as the church versus, hey, you know, there are people who are called in the reformed church to political engagement, to political careers. Ben Sass um, is a good example. Ben Sass <laughs> is one. There's There are many from West Michigan. Um, I think in the Christian reformed church, I believe there are seven or eight state or national representatives um, that are members of Christian Reformed churches. And I know all but one are Republicans. Um, there might be one from West Michigan who is a Democrat. But um, okay. but there is engagement happening in the political sphere from Christians, and that is fantastic. That is a, a good godly calling. However, that's not our calling as ministers be- yeah. because we do see some separation um, some no, some distinction at least between church and state. Yeah, as we're looking into this episode, one question people may be asking is why this episode? Why <laughs> right now? The day uh, before the inauguration. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's what's the big point here uh, with with dropping this episode? So I'd love to have you explain your reasoning because if I'm honest, this was your choice. So. Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> I'm along for the ride today. Yeah. So. Obviously, people are thinking a lot about this stuff over the past few weeks. This has really ramped up. It's probably at an all-time high in terms of how much time people are spending thinking about political matters. You know, there would be certain eras like World War II where that would have been very prevalent as well, of course. But uh, Vietnam would be another one um, where there is a lot of uncertainty and chaos and a lot of different voices essentially a cacophony of voices um i thought it would be good as christians for us to get back to first principles get back to scripture get back to reform theology um instead of just listening to the loud angry voices that are very attractive let's recenter ourselves on what the bible says the connection is or the separation is between the church and the state um and uh what our reformed forebears have to say about the topic as well it's really a refreshing a recentering 
And I strongly believe that one will come out of this conversation far more hopeful, far more peaceful than you would coming uh, away from watching the pundits on TV rant and rave for an hour or so. So the, the goal of this is certainly to edify, to build people up, to mm-hmm. remind you all that no matter who is in the White House, Christ is king, that uh, the church has a spiritual authority and real spiritual power. So even in this world, the Christian isn't just resolved to um, the lowest caste of society and there's mm-hmm. nothing in the world that we could do. No, there is um, there is power and authority in the church. It's a spiritual power, fundamentally. Um, but we're not just powerless right, to, to drift <laughs> through life. Uh, and also, we are called to engage with the world around us in a Christian way. And yeah. so maybe one of the scripture texts that comes to mind first when thinking about this topic is where Jesus is talking to, well, he's praying to the Father in John 17 about sending the disciples into the world. And he sends them saying, they are not of the world any more than I am of the world, but he says, I am sending them out as the Father sent him. And so certainly a Christian is called to go into the world. We're not called to be so separate from the world that we don't know what is happening, but we're called to go to the world to think about worldly things to some extent, to engage with political matters, but always to do so not as people of the world, but as people who are citizens of Christ's kingdom. Yeah, so there's a sort of pilgrimage yeah. happening yeah. where we are pilgrims in a in a foreign land in some sense. Um, I want to say that it's all it's all Christ's world. This is this is Christ's earth. He is he is king over all. Mm. Uh, but we we do walk as pilgrims in a in a world that is not you know it's not perfectly the way things should be. And so we're mm. we're we're getting through, and we are making our way through this world, knowing that this world is to be redeemed, is to be uh, is to be made new by Christ. Uh, and so. I I'd personally think it would be I think it would be cool to walk through sort of the relationship of church and state throughout the dispensation throughout the the, yeah. the the scriptures <laughs> uh, throughout uh, the Bible maybe a biblical theology mm. of church and state if we want to call it that uh, to sound smart you know um, and so if we were to look at the Old Testament just real briefly how would we characterize the relationship between church and state i think one helpful uh way of looking at it would be to see almost the church and state as synonymous Mm. as one entity together it was a theocracy and yeah yeah, so we call that a theocracy as opposed to democracy yeah the working of the people yeah i i don't know the exact suffix so i'm not going (laughs) to pretend that i that i can explain that perfectly away but yeah like democracy but theocracy uh, I think demos means people in Greek, as far as I know. So the people rule, and so that this is God's rule. God rules all things. So the church, mm. so to speak, Israel, uh, the it's it's all one entity. The the spiritual and the political are are tied up together. Yeah. And so we could say church as empire would be the relationship of the church and the state. They would all be essentially the same. Yeah, you have kings Thanks. making spiritual mm-hmm. instruction, giving spiritual instruction, um, even liturgical instruction, yeah. or and priests yeah. who um, really also had a role in delegating authority and governing over people in a pretty, sometimes even in kind of a legal way, mm-hmm. where uh, people come to the priest with some sort of pseudo legal issue and the priest enables them to uh, get through that issue um, mm-hmm. functioning as kind of a local magistrate actually uh, and and so you do have a blending of hmm. political authority and spiritual authority in the Old Testament that and that's a very reformed take on the Old Testament as well we have Bavink um, talking about that saying under the Old Testament dispensation the government was specifically charged by God to carry out the task of enforcing God's law and uh, encouraging 
worship, worship of the living worship. God, and so forth and so on. And yeah, encouraging godly morality. Yeah, uh, according to God's law. So yeah, yeah. That, that would be a simple overview. <laughs> Very Perhaps simple, yeah. oversimplified, sure. but uh, that's. I think it's helpful to move on. Then looking at the New Testament, how do we see the relationship of church and state? differ in the new testament and one of the interesting things that we all know happens between the testaments and the intertestamental period and really even at the end of the old testament is that the the israelites return from exile to their homeland to israel but they are not the sole rulers of that land anymore Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they are sent back and so they can they can rebuild the temple and get back to their worship but no longer are they autonomous yeah, in the sovereign. sense that they were formerly. Yeah, um, They now are under the power of a foreign empire. And so that continues on. And then by the time that the New Testament comes around, the ruling empire is now the Roman Empire. And so intertestamental stuff with the Maccabees and the revolt. Uh, but still, mm. the Jews are being ruled by a foreign power. And so how would you characterize the church's position and its relationship to the state in that period. Well, I like what, um, obviously there are several examples in the New Testament that deal with this pretty specifically. Jesus says of his own kingdom when he's being arrested and Peter decides to take up his sword against the captors, Jesus stops him saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And so the church does exist and function within the world. We recognize that um, in some ways the church is called to cooperate with civil society um, and to bless our neighbors. That's very clear in Paul's letters. As far as you're able, live at peace with all people. Um, But it is distinct from the the worldly political apparatus that oversees it um i think i think it's also bavink who says the church is distinct from um the the world but not separate from the world Hmm. and so we can see the same connection there between the church and the state the church is distinct from the state but it is not entirely separate from the state. The church is called to influence um, the state, certainly, and the state is called also to um, enable freedoms that would protect Christians so that they might share the gospel and love neighbors. So Hmm. there is distinction, um, but I would say the American value of separation between church and state goes a little bit further than the New Testament picture of of the interaction between the two yeah so on the notes here that we have for the episode i think you helpfully said something that it's church within an empire yeah the church now is living uh within an empire that is not exactly a a christian empire especially not in the time of the of the new testament of course uh it was again as we said the roman empire and so there were, were different ways of having to relate to to the church or to the state excuse me on behalf of the church. Yeah. Um, so what do we do with two big passages that come to mind? Uh, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2. Mm-hmm. These are very complicated passages in some ways. And, and I guess I'll say that they're straightforward in terms of what they mean, but how they work out can be uh, sometimes difficult for Christians to to decide. Um, yeah. talking Especially about lately, submitting but, to authorities yeah. um, and more, sub, the authorities having the uh, the sword, bearing the sword, and, and basically which means that they are able to uphold the law, to up, hopefully uphold fairness, to uphold yeah. truth, truth yeah. um, and morality, uh, and so on. So how does the church, how, how are these passages germane to this conversation? How do, how do they enlighten us and help us the texts clearly show something really important about god's authority that is delegated to worldly entities or um, people so john calvin uh, really gives a lot of attention to these scripture texts and notes that 
the magistrate has a certain kind of ordination, actually, and whether they recognize it or not, they are placed in their role by God, and so therefore are accountable to God to do what is just and fair and benevolent. Mm -hmm. And so Calvin says, well, first of all, that makes us realize that it isn't a bad thing to be a magistrate, because if God sets up his authority in the world through governments, then it would be a good thing for a godly person to be in that role who is has a finely tuned conscience, that somebody who has the mind of Christ so that they would know the wisdom of God. Um, all of those things would be kind of an ideal situation, and that's what all magistrates, that's the standard by which they're, hmm. they're to be held. That yeah. really gives a lot of pressure, I would say, on the magistrate because they represent God in some regard. That's clearly uh, taught, particularly in the Romans text. Hmm. Um, and so this, this is a throne that's been established by God. Sometimes that's used just to sort of keep people down and say, so you better obey, all you serfs. Um, but really, I, I think <laughs> it, it was meant to inspire obedience to the state, but it's also meant to inspire obedience of the state to God as they represent him. Yeah, that is a really helpful thing. Uh, I like that Calvin says that. I, I, had, I hadn't read that before, but that's really interesting that he uses language, so to speak, relating to ordination. God, yeah. God has ordained them to be in charge, and therefore, yeah, they're accountable to his law. That is a very fascinating truth. How do we, what are, what are some real life examples mm. Uh, of of how this is being worked out, especially in the context of our past year with coronavirus yeah. and the, the the church and the state, uh, there seems to have been in many many quarters of the evangelical world a sort of ongoing war between the two, yeah. and there are a lot of different views of uh, should the church, you know, submit to the state, and if so, how and when. Is there times when the state oversteps its authority? Yeah. What do we what do we make of all that? And sort of getting it down to how this reaches our own world and getting out of the realm of just theory, so to speak. Yeah, we dealt with this a little bit with the COVID-19 episode that we did, but it's helpful to get into it again. Um, now we have scriptures in front of us and we I have my reformed dogmatics open right next <laughs> to me here on the couch. And I think... It's helpful to think of the, the three different streams, again, the Catholic, hmm. the Reformed, and the Anabaptistic approaches yeah. to the connection between church and state. So very quickly, we could summarize that by saying the Catholic view is that the church is over the state. The church is above the state. Yeah. The highest authority in the world is the Pope. Yeah. And They're separate, and the church is over it. The church that, is number one, state would be number two. Right, and so the Pope has authority. This is especially true historically, a little bit less so today. Yeah. But in the Middle Ages, the Pope has authority to uh, excommunicate a king, to remove mm -hmm. a king, um, to do all kinds of political maneuvering. Yeah. Because the church is over the state. So the opposite view is kind of to going to the other extreme would be the Anabaptistic that the church is absolutely and fundamentally separate from mm -hmm. the state and never the twain shall meet. So yeah. the, the strict Anabaptist would not be allowed to run for government, would not be, certainly would be not serve in the armed forces, mm -hmm. um, would really avoid at all costs being some kind of agent of the state. And this is maybe has a new term, radical two-kingdom theology, yeah. um, That's um, that really draws on the separation between the two. Um, the yeah, biggest two, two different institutions, so to speak. That yeah. You don't really yeah. want to exist in the secular state. You want to only exist in the church. And you would see Anabaptists sort of creating their own little city-states with, yep. civil, with, with the, the civil magistrate was basically just the church it was the church that would rule over the people and it was in many ways separate and removed from the rest of the national churches this would have been in 
Germany and Switzerland mm. and other places during the Reformation. Yeah, and so when Anabaptists, in that day and even today, when they cooperate with the state, it's essentially in spite of their theology. Hmm. It's not a natural action or activity to cooperate with something that the government is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of something like World War II, where I would guess many Anabaptistic people even served in World War II because the hmm. the call was so clear that we are going to fight this battle of good and evil, and um, in, in it's the one of the clearest wars in all history of who was right and who was wrong. Um, many hmm. wars are are very difficult to be able to discern who is on sort of the good and who's on the bad side. Yeah. But in World War II, my goodness, it was very, very clear uh, that mm. Nazism and Japanese expansionism had to stop. And so an Anabaptist would perhaps serve in that in spite of their own theology, or even with the COVID thing. Um, mm. At first, the Anabaptist obeyed the government in spite of their theology because uh, on John MacArthur's church's own website, it says that the church is distinct from the state and not subject to the state's authority. Something along those lines. It's very powerful language about how the church has a sort of separate sovereignty that exists kind of abstractly apart from the state. Yeah, and when we listened to the state, it was almost in spite of our own theology, um, in, instead of with a more reformed view that would say we we value what the state has to say, yeah. um, and that, our disobedience now to the state in meeting is actually in spite of our theology. Yeah. So, um, the, again, the reformed view then to tran- transition into uh, what we believe concerning these things. Um, there are a few different views we, even within the Reformed stream of cooperation oh, sure. between the state and the church. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll read just a little bit from Reformed Dogmatics, page 390 of volume 4. What marks the Reformed tradition's polity is the conviction that while church and state are distinct from each other, the church also distributes its spiritual goods for the benefit of the whole of humanity and for every aspect of of human life. And so there's cooperation and participation in that theology. Um, he goes on to say, it is hmm. sinful to assign ecclesiastical power to the state as well as to change ecclesiastical power into political power. Um, hmm. These are pure gold little statements, in my yeah. view, um, that very nicely summarize ref- good Reformed theology um, that is practical theology. Yeah, I really like that first statement. It shows the reformed vision of the complementarity of yes. the church and state. And I think that's really I, where I think this this is really helpful to get, is to see that church and state are two different God-ordained means through which the realm of human humanity is governed properly. Mm-hmm. And so we cannot... I don't think pit them against one another and to say that we should, we should advocate for the church's rights over and against the, the state's rights. What we need to see is how they are called by God to work together for the, in, the mutual benefit of both. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think the reformers view is seeing that the church is, is called to work for the mutual benefit of society, just as Bob Inc. puts it there. Yeah. And so, the church should use its its gifts and its resources to benefit people. Uh, one way would be through charity. That's a very yep. clear way. Um, but he also goes on to talk about arts and sciences and getting involved in those in those realms. Uh, but yes, also sending the, agents from the church into the arts, into the sciences, into the state to bless yeah. the world through those, yeah. those means. And so I, I, I think that actually fits well with what, I think it's what Luther says about the Christian shoemaker hmm. and just the idea of the Christian shoemaker doesn't need to put a cross on side inside every single shoe to make it to market as a Christian shoe, but just needs to make the best possible shoe. Mm-hmm. And so that is a sort of, even though it's Luther, I think it accords well with the reformed view of, of 
doing the absolute best job in order to glorify God and in order to uh, extend the lordship of Christ overall and see the lordship of Christ over all things. Uh, and so that, but that's, so that's one way we yeah. can see the relationship. The church is supposed to, of course, do what the church is called to do, preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments and so on. Mm-hmm. But an outworking of that is to bless the greater society, the greater good. So just for example of this, in my series for the youth group this semester, we're going to be looking at uh, particular figures from church history. It would be easy for me to choose all pastors and theologians Mm. because I read a lot of those. But (laughs) I also want to show how Christians have made a beneficial impact on the world around them through... uh, you know, through hospitals, through sure. serving the poor, through even activism. Uh, so we can look at the the racial debates of the past several centuries that took place in America and in England and yeah. elsewhere where Christians advocated, although it was often Christians who wanted to keep slavery and to yeah. use the Bible to try to justify it. It was ultimately Christians are arguing, making a more compelling argument mm-hmm. from Scripture mm-hmm. that won the day. And so Christians were fighting for for justice, and that there's there's again going back to the previous episode. There's good things about the word justice. We want <laughs> we want to uphold that. Yeah, uh, that's a biblical command. And so in all these ways, the church helps to serve society. But Bavink also notes the 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 state doing things to mm. help the life of the church, and that yeah. that can get a little bit tricky and. In uh, in working out, um, do we do we want the state to, you know, protect the church? Do we want the we don't want the state, as he says, to have anything, any power in the church. We don't want to give ecclesiastical power to the state. We don't want the state telling the church what they can and can't preach on, or who they can or can't ordain as ministers and so on. But what is the role of the state with the church? Yeah, that that's a big question. That's a really sticky question um, because Bavink does claim that it is the role of government in a Christian nation, he says, Mm -hmm. to essentially advance the cause of the church. Um, I I don't know if I would be so comfortable with that language, (laughs) especially in a more pluralistic society like the one we live in. Yeah, we live in a different place than than Um, Bavink does. And so when we were getting ready for this podcast, we were trying to think of word pictures that would summarize or explain our view of the role of the state for the sake of the church. And I think a referee in a game is a good Mm -hmm. analogy. Um, The church is the player in the game that does the work of evangelism and care uh, for our neighbors and so forth. And the referee makes sure that the rules are being followed so that the game can be played fairly. Mm-hmm. So ideally, I see the church functioning as um, it says it, sh- it says it should in the, or sorry, the state functioning as it says it should in the Bible, mm-hmm. where um, evildoers are punished, um, those who do good are rewarded. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly Maintaining what Maintaining the r- right like. environment for the, quote, game. Right, to be played, the game to be right. played, and um, and doing that in a very serious way too, like mm-hmm. uh, in a very active way of refereeing, um, so that the truth can be shared, so that the gospel can go forth, because we believe that the gospel will win, that truth will mm-hmm. win, and so um, as the church, we want to make sure that people are being one to the church. Mm-hmm. That's part of the problem with saying the government should be promoting mm-hmm. the gospel itself or should be promoting the church because yeah. it, then it starts to get a little bit confusing about who you're pledging ultimate allegiance to. Mm-hmm. If it is very clear that it is the church, it is um, the body of Christ that I am being grafted into when I become a Christian, that's ideal, uh, where a government starts to take on that responsibility for itself one could start to think just like people did in the netherlands in bavings day mm-hmm. i'm dutch which is a <laughs> quote-unquote christian nation and so therefore i am a christian mm-hmm. so uh, when the lines are blurred 
one's assurance is blurred a little bit as well, I would say. Maybe another thing that we need to talk about would be some of the warnings of where this can go wrong. We've obviously seen all throughout church history where there has been what Bavink calls a confusion of powers, um, both from the church towards the state and from the state towards the church. And um, we, we saw that happen in our own nation a couple weeks ago where Christian nationalists uh, were at least in part uh, cooperating with this riot that happened at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, there are all, all kinds of other theories about who that crowd consisted of, but certainly we can see and I have heard interviews with people who have said, I wanted to storm that Capitol building to get into the rotunda, to get into the House of Representatives, because we got to take back this nation for Jesus. That's, that's basically what one guy said in an interview that, that I watched. And I don't think he was being a phony or a, posing as a Christian and maybe being some sort of Antifa operative and saying that. But he seemed very sincere um, saying, uh, I, I love the Constitution, and I love Jesus, and I'm just so fed up with people not listening to me and going mm-hmm. against Trump and going against the cause of the truth, of what he would perceive as the truth. And so I was, I was going to storm in there and make my voice heard. And so this is quite plainly what we could call Christian nationalism. Uh, yeah. It's the idea that in order for the church to be healthy, in order for the church to be influential, you might say, or or even in order for the church to be successful, our nation must be controlled by Christian people, you might say. In, mm-hmm. in order for we would say, as the morals of the nation go, so goes the church. It's uh, it's gauging the church's success by asking how much political power Christians have. Yeah. That's, I would say, kind of boiling Christian nationalism down to its essence. Yeah, well, that's that brings up the interesting discussion of should the church seek political uh, sway? Mm. And should it should it seek to be sort of the most influential way of seeing the world in a particular nation. So this is kind of the question of Christendom. Uh, What is the ideal? Does the church do better when it's the minority Hmm. and it's uh, existing in a, in a nation or in an empire that is otherwise opposed to it? Yeah. And is that something that the church should seek? What happens when, let's say 200 years from now, China becomes very, very strongly Christian. Hmm. And I mean, they already are, but let's say that the, the government begins to reflect that. Yeah. How should the church and the state, is, is, that, is it an ideal hmm. for the church or for the state to work with the church to promote the cause of the church um, through its various means of, of maintaining the rules uh, and so on? Or... Yeah. Or what? How do we think about this? This is a really perplexing it's, question. It's a big one. I, I think we could think of another analogy. We've already used the referee thing, but let's think about it in terms of wealth. Hmm. So if somebody is wealthy, they can use that wealth for many good things in the kingdom of God. If somebody is obsessed with getting wealth, that would be a sin. That would be greed. Mm-hmm. And political engagement is very much the same way in my view, where if a Christian has political power, that's a wonderful thing. And that's even something that would be good to seek. However, if a Christian is obsessed with political power, it's really the same thing as greed. Which is what we've seen. That's what caused the riot. Yeah. Yeah, so it was an obsession with political power, so much so that if I don't have political power, the world is coming to an end, Mm -hmm. the church is going to die. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like this were said. Um, That's a huge confusion of the church and state. Basically, it's it's a strange form of of theocracy. 
I think. Yeah, it's an attempt at theocracy for sure. To, to have the church be doing okay, we have to politicize the church, and therefore we have to basically get our way in government so that the church uh, can can flourish, which is not only a wrong political viewpoint, I think, for the Christian, but it also is a viewpoint based completely on fear. Yeah. That the church cannot do well if our guy is not, you know, the president of the United States. Yep. Uh, that is a oh very prevalent very <laughs> prevalent and uh it you just get back to the words of jesus again my kingdom is not of this world mm-hmm. and not only those words of course but the beatitudes i think of blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of god hmm. so that that means again to use the money analogy can a person be blessed when they are poor Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Somebody who isn't super wealthy can be a person who is richly spiritually blessed and lives a life of service of Christ, a life that brings glory to him. Hmm. Um, A life of joy and contentment. Even a life of power, you would say. Like, And so the the person who is poor in financial, uh, in the financial sense, can still be very powerful. Hmm. And... um, that person has a kind of spiritual power, uh, mm-hmm. courage, uh, faith that is powerful that will endure through trials and things like that. And so um, we could think of the church in a in a nation where there is very little political power as being kind of like a poor person. Mm-hmm. So that person, that church, still has spiritual power. That that church could still have faith that can move mountains and and so forth mm-hmm. um but and and would it be good for that church to return to more political influence yes it would be a good thing mm-hmm. but um that church in a nation that is rejecting it is no less spiritually rich mm-hmm. and is not a failure and so again I, we started saying we hope to encourage people and i think that that is one of the most encouraging things that we could think about in this conversation about church and state. Paul said at one point, we possess nothing yet have everything. And so I I used that in a sermon recently and said, if the church has no political power, none, we still possess everything. We still have everything that we need. That's a really important point too in our day and age where depending on the sway of the public at any given moment, in a democracy such as ours, the church can seem like it's on the ascendant and other times it can seem like it's on the descendant. Like yeah. it's, it's, we're, we're going to the top. This is sort of the religious right movement of the, of the eighties, which culminated in Reagan. Yeah. The moral majority. We're getting yeah. to the top. Christianity is going to reclaim its throne, right? And that's sort of, you, you would hear the sort of claims that you would, you've been hearing for the past four years of making America great again. We're going to, really emphasize our Christianity in this country. Um, Yeah. And, and, but now we're on the, we're on the sort of the ebb. That was the flow. Now we're on the, it's ebbing out. It's, it's, uh, it's going down. It's, and so it seems like Christianity is going to be pushed to the fore. And so people get really fearful. Or Democrats would say the opposite, right? They would say Trump ruined Christianity. And, and now (laughs) that Biden's in, we can get back to social justice and things of that nature. So, both sides politically are mm-hmm. guilty of greed, mm-hmm. of that greed for political power, Lust for and power, yeah. of measuring the success of the church by a political measurement. Mm-hmm. That's the great problem of of American Christian nationalism, mm-hmm. and that nationalism can appear. I really do think on both sides of the political aisle. Yeah, um, but we do not measure the success the fruitfulness of the church based on how many representatives represent our party, how many uh, is the president a Republican or a Democrat. Um, We measure the fruitfulness of the church based on spiritual criteria. Um, And that's often more micro than macro. So uh, it can be hard to see sometimes, but um, I I do think those beatitudes, I, 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 think of those rioters 
and then I read the Beatitudes or I just read the ministry of Jesus and it's like, wow, this is so far apart. Yeah, something's some, off. Something went really, really wrong here. You know, bringing the Jesus saves sign mm-hmm. past the cop who is getting bludgeoned with uh, literally an American flag. Yeah, I think we'll we'll try to, you know, come back to that issue in a yeah, further, further yeah. episode. I think it, it warrants... A longer discussion, a full episode, because sure. yeah, I I could just go off now, but I I don't want to. I think I'll I'll try to save my thoughts. But yeah, what are some other things that have come yeah. to mind? Just so, sort of you know, getting back to the idea of church and state. What are some other discussions that are that are helpful? Uh, well, this this topic um, that I really did want to cover is what would be called mission creep of the church towards being a political entity. Oh man, that's really um, good. And so mission creep is what happens in an organization or uh, like a business when the business loses focus of what it's supposed to be working on and all of a sudden becomes obsessed or distracted by some other matter, some other goal. Um, you know, you would think it, it's like if Chick-fil-A all of a sudden decided that they they were going to start selling socks you know it's like <laughs> um chick-fil-a sells chicken sandwiches and they make awesome chicken that's what you do socks. do what you do and you don't need to be selling apparel you know on top of it um yeah. and uh that would be a case of mission creep if would that you were to happen would you say that mission creep happens on both sides of the christian the church the, the more progressive side and oh, the more yeah. conservative side absolutely because <laughs> I would say the the more theologically conservative church like ours would, the mission creep is in more in the form of um, still it's political advocacy, but um, starting to value the impact we're having in the church, uh, evaluating that by how um, things are going in terms of taxation and a lot of sort of Republican Mm -hmm. values. Um, so some people can get very discouraged, uh, in the church mm-hmm. thinking we, we've lost our, our influence and we're not mm-hmm. doing what we should do when political things kind of go against them. Yeah. And of course it's also happening in, on the more liberal side as well, where the church becomes, especially for more social gospel minded people, the church becomes the avenue through which political advocacy happens. And mm-hmm. I think of the Office of Social Justice and the CRC as being very, very guilty of this. Mm-hmm. And um, before we, we started recording, we were reading through Acts 24, 25, and 26. And um, this is not the most commonly preached section of the book of Acts. It's at the end, so maybe Yeah, in fact, as we were there. rereading it, I was sort of like, man, I, I remember reading this, yeah. but I've never really read it through this lens, and so... So in those chapters, new things. Paul is in these various trials, and um, he's brought up under charges of rebelliousness, basically, and stirring up riots. And whenever the Apostle Paul goes to a new ruler like a Felix or Festus, he what is his response? His what response is, his, is hey, is listen to the gospel. L- yeah. Listen to this great gospel that I have. Um, the 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 text says that he he talks with um, Felix regularly about what was it righteousness yeah it's it's in chapter 24 verse 25 and it says as paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment felix was alarmed yeah and and said go away (laughs) and so he he's on trial for his life and he just is so excited to talk about jesus christ the way to salvation that forgiveness can be is is available to felix um and, he he uh, does go on to argue his innocence in the following chapter, but his right his primary aim is to preach the gospel. Yeah, so we don't want to overstate that. He just talks about the gospel wherever yeah, he, he goes. Doesn't, he doesn't care about being in prison. Right, so he does care, but yet he keeps the gospel always at the forefront. Yeah. And uh, he does the very same thing with, with the next um, trial that he goes into. I just with love... Agrippa, yeah. Yeah, Agrippa's like, how did you get into this situation in <laughs> Acts 26? And he gives the story of his calling. And Which includes the gospel very, very clearly. Yeah. And so he, he's basically saying to King Agrippa, I, I have come to you to open your eyes. This is 
chapter 26, verse 18. I have come to open your eyes, to turn you from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that you may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. So that's what the opposite of mission creep. That is Paul rock solid in total sync with the Spirit, remembering it is the goal of the church to bring salvation, to proclaim salvation through Jesus Christ, even in this very political context. That's what Paul wants to do. So, of course, this is a a real indictment, I believe, of our Office of Social Justice, which is totally distracted by political things. And and I have contacted them directly and um, encouraged them to be more gospel-minded, to include Scripture, Hmm. um, to stand on the foundation of God's Word instead of becoming essentially a political entity, which, Uh um, which is very much what that mission where that mission creep will lead us away from our spiritual power into an obsession on political power yeah and so this this whole mission creep thing i think is as we've said really clearly a temptation on both sides yeah and it's it's usually going into turning the political realm into where it all has to happen we have to win the politics and then Yep. It's it's all good. Yep. We've spiritualized the political realm. Oh, hugely. So much that we really think that getting the right uh legislation put in place, getting the right people in office is is what it all comes down to. And that is to really miss what the calling of the church mm. is in the world. The 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 calling of the church is to preach the preach the gospel. This should and will have an effect on the world. Yeah. We can see that just by looking at church history. Uh, we can see how the gospel has done amazing things in changing people's hearts, changing their lives, and then changing the way that they interact with the world, the way that they do seek to establish peace and to, to give mercy and to establish justice in their lands. Mm-hmm. You, we, this you, this yeah. happens. And you really see it um, in missions right now, for example. So what are missionaries called to do? Oh yeah. Uh, a hundred years ago, that was a very, very simple, simple question. question. <laughs> you, everyone knew the missionary goes to Korea, to Nigeria, to China to convert people into the Christian faith. They are there to preach the gospel, to start churches, to create worshiping communities, and they are there to... Uh, bless their their neighbors and so forth. And I'm not totally baptizing all of the methods that were used a hundred years oh, ago. No. Sometimes those methods were actually quite racist, mm-hmm. um, trying to deprogram people's culture into really what was essentially a European culture, yeah. as if that's Christianity. Hence the often, you know, the claim that people will always say that evangelism historically has looked like colonization. Right. You're really trying to use... And so some of it was. You're trying to give spiritual language to basically building a foreign empire in a foreign empire. (laughs) Yeah, and so some of it was colonization, but I am quite convinced in reading some of the materials produced by some of these these missionaries that they were truly there out of love, Mm -hmm. love for God, and love for these people who needed to hear the gospel and become uh, Christians. Mm-hmm. So that's the old model of mission work. And that is, I don't want to um, so, sort of cast aspersions on all missionaries today. Many missionaries mm-hmm. are still doing those that kinds of things. Um, mm-hmm. In my last church, we supported a young man through African Inland Mission who went mm-hmm. to be a shepherd in Lesotho with these shepherd boys. And he was mm-hmm. there to open the Bible to them and preach the gospel so he literally became poor i mean it was totally philippians too just perfectly and uh an awesome ministry and so that is happening through many ministries mission india is another great example Mm -hmm. where they are planting churches that's what they want to do however even in our own denomination it is becoming more and more the goal of a missionary to be more of a political advocate um Mm -hmm. to be a teacher um, as opposed to to be a church planter and to um, demand systems to change, right? Those, 
or and so oh. political advocacy becomes one of the main goals. This is that mission creep mm-hmm. instead of the Pauline example of, hey, uh, listen to this great gospel that mm-hmm. I have to share with you. It's it's life saving. Which it's ironically is trying to go and do political advo- advocacy, for example, in a different country without preaching the gospel. That seems sounds more like colonization of another <laughs> culture. We're bringing our cultural Absolutely. values yeah. to them without giving them sort of the heart of why those things even matter. Yeah. And it's so it's I really think it's the gospel that has changed western society so much. We can't just take western society's moral system and implant it somewhere else without mm. bringing the gospel to anybody and I'm not saying we should use the gospel as the Trojan horse to bring western society no. to places either. That's a whole other conversation. <laughs> sure. Uh, we we definitely don't want to do that. I'm not trying I don't want to go to India and make them all Westerners, although I guess that is in some ways happening. Yeah. One of my smartest college professors who knew English better than any, anyone was from India. Yeah. And uh, and so people should go to other nations to do political advocacy. That's great. But yeah. let's not pretend that that's all missionaries need to be focused on. Like, I think that it, the extremes are, are really where we have dangers. It's, yeah. Is it just spiritual and we're just here mm-hmm. to preach the gospel and we don't care if these people are poor? No, that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus would say, uh, what good is it to say somebody, peace, peace, um, and without, doing anything uh, without, without actually helping them? Yeah. You, you bring them uh, the, the cup of cold water in the meal. And mm-hmm. so that's a good thing. But we don't bring only the cup of cold water mm-hmm. and the meal. And that is unfortunately now called missions. Um, by a lot of people. So uh, it's a confusion of the relationship, I think, between church and state. Um, and hopefully we can kind of move out of this conversation being hopeful that mm-hmm. uh, this is an important thing in the reform view, that mm-hmm. the, the state, each state has no guarantee of its permanence. Oh, yeah. And no yet way. the church does. Yep. And so... The, the gates of Hades cannot overcome the church. And so where a church is pure, it will remain. And um, where a church is is thriving, um, God is worshipped there. And this is true in persecuted nations like Pakistan and Indonesia and India and China right now. And so I get emotional thinking about it because pe- the church is alive there. Hmm. Despite all of the state's effort to kill it and so christ is continues to be faithful to his promise that although the state is uh powerful um the power of the church is greater and so perhaps this could happen in the next couple generations in our own nation but we need not respond like the rioters um or the apostle peter who are ready to take up arms because yeah. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. It's so, like the theology of the cross that Luther talks about. Yeah. We should be prepared to Absolutely. suffer and to die. And that even when we, we become the oppressed, we still live as as the word of God calls us to live. I think it's interesting in, in First Peter, uh, which is written to people who are really, it's the it's to the diaspora, it's to dispersed Christians, uh, Jewish Christians, I think. Mm. And they're going to be facing persecution, he's telling them. And he even calls them in the midst of facing all that persecution to hold to the law yeah, and to suffer well, to submit to the authorities mm. and to obey God in all of it. And so what we saw last week was people who feel oppressed by the government who are disobeying God's own law mm. and dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we just sh- like Peter was in, in the garden. As yeah, well. yeah, exactly. Taking to arms, and that is absolutely inappropriate for the Christian. Yeah, so that's... Um, that's a little bit of where we're at, and we do love feedback. We've gotten some really wonderfully encouraging messages from people um, all over the place, Ontario, Georgia, right here in Ripon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so cool that this podcast has uh, reached so many different people, and um, we do want you 
to sort of head into this new administration, um, knowing just the words of Ephesians 6, our struggles are not against flesh and blood, mm. but against the rulers, authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. And God gives us the victory in that battle. So he says to us, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Um, and uh, neither, <laughs> maybe for those who are claiming victory here as Joe Biden t- ascends to the presidency, um, <laughs> do not be greedy and do not idolize um, the authority that, uh, that, that he would you know, place in the hands of your preferred political candidate either. So do not be afraid. Do not be an idolater. Um, be a Christ follower. Be confident that the gates of Hades will not overcome the church ever. Yeah. So with with God as King, with Christ yeah. as King, we yeah. have every reason for a joyful optimism, even in the face of suffering. Yeah. Amen. Not so. to say we're going to be, you know, suffering in the same way with with Biden as, sure. as president, <laughs> as the Chinese Christians. We're not. That's not where we're going to be. I don't think. But yeah. Even when when we feel as though our viewpoints are not held, and we feel like we're on the minority, that's okay. Yeah. That shouldn't be the end of the world because it's not the end of Christ's faithfulness to us. Yeah, in Revelation it says this will require endurance and patience among the mm-hmm. saints. And so that's uh that's where we're called to go and that's what we're called to be like, enduring patiently being faithful to God. Amen. So thanks for listening everyone. We will be back next week with uh, another edition of Reform Podmatics. Keep spreading the word. Talk with people that you know if you've enjoyed the podcast. And uh, God bless you. Thank you for listening. All right. See you guys.